Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. What do I mean Hitler's assault on the golden rule? Well, I start with the definition of resistance. So I looked it up in the dictionary and I found that, Latin, that resistance comes from the Latin and it means not to move. Doesn't necessarily mean to do anything, but it means to resist, as in resisting an electric current. And in order to appreciate what it mean, meant to resist in Nazi Germany, I would like to show you today the popularity, the attractiveness of Nazism in the Third Reich. Uh, we, of course, look back and we think normally because we think of the victims' history. We mostly think of the victims of the Shoah. We think of the six million Jews who were killed, the 14 or so million other people, the Jew, the Poles, the Soviet POWs, etc. And common sense tells us, oh, of course, we would recognize such an evil if it happened when we watched it. And so I would like to show you the other side, the attractive side, the temptation of National Socialism, to look at the Holocaust from the inside out. This is potentially a dangerous position because I could sound like I was doing an apology to talk about how popular the Third Reich was. And here I must say, this is easier for me to do as an American than it would be for somebody who was born in Germany with a German passport. Because this is skirting the lines of apologetics and history. But I think it's, it's worth the enterprise. And if I have not quite succeeded, you'll ask me questions that will show me where. So let's start with the golden rule. Do unto others as they... As, and, and this is Kant's categorical imperative, do unto others as you wish they would do unto you. Every single culture in the world makes this more or less the bedrock of morality. It's universal. So what's the problem? The problem comes when, in certain cultures and political regimes, the other, do unto others, gets pushed off the moral map. To whom do we owe moral behavior? How does it happen that some people become, oh, people not like us? And so what I'm going to do is to take us into Nazi popular culture and particularly into educational enterprises aimed at people just a little younger than students here today. All right. So in order for the golden rule to function, the humanity, we must recognize the essential humanity of every human being, and some would argue for also for non-human beings. All right. Uh, common sense tells us a terrible catastrophe on the nature of the Holocaust must have a terrible, obvious source. That amount of evil must be the result of a uniquely evil regime. There must have been, and of course there were, it must be the result of fanatical and criminal leaders with unparalleled powers of repression. Or maybe, as Daniel Goldhagen suggested, maybe Germans were just plain more anti-Semitic than other people. It's easy to reach for extreme causes 
when we have, when we're looking for the origins of an extreme result. I'm going to look at it a different way. Let's look at Nazi Germany not as a totalitarian state as we did in the Cold War. Let's look at Nazi Germany as a failed democracy with a completely literate population, with, and here I want to quote um, Dr. Wittenstein's letter that he wrote to me very kindly, with such a well-educated and mostly obedient people. How did it happen that these people fell for Hitler's promises? So that's my question. All right. Um, This is, this is, we know, This is morality. Do unto others. It's written into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1984. Recognize all human beings in dignity and rights. Now, let let me just do a little bit of background because I'm not sure how familiar all of you are with the process that landed the Nazis in power. And if you already know this, be patient for just a few minutes. Here's some background. Okay. This is a chart of who voted for Hitler over these periods in the the Weimar Republic. This is January 1919. This is the last free election in November 1932. This category is basically Marxists of different kinds. This is the Nazi vote. This is the Catholic vote. And these are the liberal, liberal conservative parties. So you look at this, and the first thing that you notice is that in the last free election of the, of the democracy, the majority of voters voted for socialist parties. The Nazi party got 4% less. The, the Nazi party only never had a plurality in a free election. And what does this tell us? This tells us that Marxist parties held their voters and Catholic parties held their voters and that voters for the Nazi regime came from largely the middle class and, uh, and the liberal parties. Okay, so that's just a little bit of background because often it's thought that people voted Hitler into power. It's not true. Hitler came to power because he was appointed by a president who was so afraid of having a left-wing delegation in his cabinet, he decided to try a risk and appoint this person, Hitler, as his chancellor. So it was the politicians, not the people, that gave Hitler his chance. Now I'm going to talk this right now in three stages. The first stage, from January 1933 till the end of February 1933, the first month of Hitler's rule. The next stage is by far the longest. That's starting with February 28, 1933, going all the way to February 1st, 1939. And the last stage I'll go over very, very quickly, and that is the wartime from September 1st, 1939 until the end of the war in 1945. All right, Hitler was appointed, stage one, Hindenburg, the president, appointed Hitler as chancellor. There was a, that's the kind of constitution they had. Nobody was worried that he would take over. It's true there was a torchlight parade and the Nazis behaved as if they had won a mandate, but that was stage managed. That was 
obviously propaganda. The, there were only three ministers in the cabinet who were Nazi. And most of all, Hitler himself didn't look like a very likely head of state. After all, here was a very inexperienced outsider. He'd only run for, run for office once. He'd lost the election. He had never held a steady job except when he fought in the military in World War I. He had no legislative experience. He dropped out of high school. He was late, notoriously lazy. He liked to sleep late and to eat wonderful coffee und Kuchen in the late afternoon and gorge himself on pastries. He was a cranky vegetarian and a teetotaler, and his grammar was terrible, and he had an Austrian accent. So people said, we can, we're not going to worry about him. Let's go to stage two. On February 28, 1933, terrorists attacked the Capitol building, the Reichstag, in Germany. The Reichstag went up in flames, terrorism. And here is a cartoon I couldn't resist from Punch magazine. Bismarck, the chancellor, the great iron chancellor, is tapping Hitler on the shoulder and saying, okay, buddy, this is your chance. Do it. And he did. Hitler announced that there was a communist revolution underway. The communists had burned down the Reichstag. The whole country was in danger of a revolution, issued the orders. People suspected communists were arrested. And martial law, in effect, was declared, and new elections were declared, announced for March. Thousands of people were arrested. The elections were not free. Everywhere in Germany, brown shirts attacked Jews. They attacked their political enemies. It was a nightmare. On March 20th, the election, election not a free election, was held. And, I'm sorry, not March 7th, another election was, I forgot one election, another election was held, and this time, including censorship, including the fact that all communist delegates were arrested, even then, without a free election, only 43% of all Germans voted for, the, for Nazi candidates. Later that month, on the 20th of March, the Reichstag, the legislature, voted. And again, not the people, but the politicians voted Hitler four years total power. So that's just as a background. And this lack of support for Hitler in 33, I hope, will convince you to be curious about how Hitler managed to create such a popular government over the next six years. All right. So first action, the the uh, 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 let me let me talk about this. I would let's look at Hitler as somebody who marketed, advertised his appeal. And here are some guidelines. First of all, people who were persecuted were ridiculed, so that persecution against the few feels like protection of the many. And here we have obvious ridicule. Here here's a, somebody caricatured as a Jew. Critics were ridiculed. Here's a professor who worries about the Constitution. And he's looking, here he is, he's called the nitpicker. He doesn't see the great military uh, force. The second rule was that persecution appears to be preemptive self-defense. 
against an enemy that doesn't fight fair, an enemy that looks innocent but actually is quite dangerous. And that enemy was the Jewish world conspiracy. But instead of calling this a boycott against the Jews, Hitler announced that on the 1st of April, I'm sorry, Hitler didn't announce, he stayed away from this. Goebbels announced that all Germans, that is non-Jewish Germans, should boycott all Jewish stores on Saturday, April 1st, 1933. But it wasn't described as an aggressive act. Instead, it was described as a retaliation because some Jewish people in New York were threatening a boycott. So aggression against the Jews is framed as a boomerang effect. It really was the Jews who started the aggression and then the Nazis defended themselves. The boycott actually was quite a failure uh, for reasons I won't go into, but if you want to talk about it later, we can. The, the, it failed. The was called off 24 hours later, and everybody knew it failed because Goebbels got on, the propaganda minister got on the radio, and he said, it's been a great success. So you, anybody who knew, knew that meant failure. Uh, the second, the third rule about violence is that violence was limited. At this stage, Jews were not arrested as Jews. They were not uh, put in jail. Communists were arrested so that violence looked as if it was limited, so that most people would feel that the violence didn't threaten them. One of the first actions in April was to dismiss all civil servants, that includes professors and teachers, who had Jewish grandparents. And here, I thought this was a really interesting cartoon, because here you see a Jewish professor lecturing to people with gas masks. Gas masks that protect them from the poison coming from the lectern. And often when you look at visual culture, I think you really get a premonition of what's to come. So here's some barbed wire, and there are only just a couple of Jews in the audience who are not protected by their gas masks. Uh, a law was passed against the overcrowding of schools. Note this is a protective measure, saying that kids with Jewish parents could not go to public schools. Civil servants were dismissed. Laws were passed. Some Jews began to leave the country. And this is the third, this is the fourth rule. Ridicule the victims. Jews who left Germany because they felt their lives and their livelihoods were endangered were called unpatriotic. And here are two cartoons ridiculing Jews going to Israel. One of the liberal uh, writers, Heinrich Mann, Thomas Mann's brother, uh, was ridiculed. He said, aha, he's somebody who loved the Jews and they're not taking him to Israel. This is one, to, one Jew is saying to the other, oops, there goes our last chance we can't get out of here. Um, so this, now, now I'm going to go fast forward uh, because I've got to, yes, I've got to go fast forward. Let me just pause, though, briefly in 1935. In 1935, all German people who had Jewish grandparents were declared non-citizens. They lost their, and they were, young men were not allowed to serve in the military. Jewish families were not allowed to have 
Christian servants working for them if the servants were under the age of 35. And perhaps most distressing, marriages between somebody, a German Jewish person and a German Christian person were prohibited and so were sexual relations. And this was called again protection. Protection of the blood. And Immediately, the experts set out to figure out who was Jewish and who wasn't. How many grandparents, how many did it take? Were there people who were half, 50%? And then the the bureaucracy went crazy. So this happened. In 1936, people who were defined as Jewish were told if they owned businesses that they had to transfer their businesses to Aryan so-called Christian owners. And that process began. That was legal expropriation of Jewish property. Okay, let's uh, move forward and remember how brilliant Hitler was in foreign policy. This map says it all. Hitler was a genius in foreign policy. He militarized the Rhineland against the Treaty of Versailles. That's here. He uh, formed a unity with Austria, which was outlawed in the Versailles Treaty. He annexed the French, the German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia right here. He conquered the rest of Czechoslovakia all by 1939, and the Allies did nothing to stop him. Nothing. They threatened, they fussed, they did nothing. So the way seemed open. On September 1st, 1939, German armies marched into Poland. And again, the Allies declared war. France and, and Britain declared war, but they sent no troops. They did nothing. So Against the background of what I'm now going to to introduce you to, remember we're looking at an extraordinarily successful foreign policy uh, manager. And remilitarization meant contracts, Keynesian economics, the German unemployment rate, which was one out of three in 1933. One out of three people were unemployed in Germany. By 1936, there was a shortage of labor. And that happened because of military, uh, many reasons, but mostly because of military spending. Okay. So now, let's turn to what it would have been like if you were somebody who did not feel threatened by the Nazi government. You were good, you were not communists, you weren't Jewish, you weren't gypsy, you weren't homosexual, you seemed to be just a regular mainstream person. Oh, I forgot to ask. How many Jews were in, lived in Nazi Germany in 1933? Who would just like to take a guess? How many, what percentage of the German population, 65, 70 million people, what percentage of those Germans had Jewish grandparents? Just give me a guess. Take a guess. Oh, come on. How many? To, what do I hear? 45%. Okay, let's keep going. More guesses. Just figure. How many percent? 2%. Oh, my gosh. Guess what? 2% is high. 1%. Less than 1%. So we're talking about a tiny minority. Thank you very much for your 45 that, I, we, this is, and he was not a plant. <laughs> okay. So let's take a look at what life was like for mainstream Germans. First of all, their most popular beverage was Coca-Cola. The most popular car was the Ford car. 
It's true that jazz musicians were expelled and Jewish musicians were not allowed to play, but the Germans developed their own kind of jazz, their own substitute. Yes, it's true Marlene Dietrich came to this country, but the Germans found their own Swedish substitute, Zara Leander. So popular culture was amazingly lively and international. Germans, for the first time of any country in the West, got paid vacations. And if they were active in Nazi party organizations, they also got special tours. The world's largest cruise ship was built for cheap vacations. It didn't have staterooms. It had little tiny bunks because this was the people's cruise ship. there, the Volkswagen, of course, as you all know, was the car that you could start saving for. Actually, nobody ever got a Volkswagen before 45 because they was turned into tank engines instead. But still, these are activities that Germans enjoyed if they were good, obedient subjects. And this is not to be minimized. Uh, Germany exuded health. Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, spent their vacation there in the mid-30s, and they had a wonderful time. They didn't notice anything was wrong. Virginia Woolf went, uh, Virginia and Leonard Woolf took their vacation there in 1937, and they didn't notice anything either until they happened by accident to see somebody Jewish being beaten up. Uh, Let's just think for a second about the technology of the time. The Nazi government took over at a time of revolution in communications, unparalleled by anything until the microchip came into our lives about 15 years ago. Think of the new inventions at the time. The radio. Now, radio ownership was... Met with, we knew how many people had radios because you needed a license. As soon as the Nazis took over, they offered radios at below market price. And these radios could only get naturally, German stations. So all of Germany listens to the Führer. Uh, Here's a a lovely painting of a family gathered not around the fireplace, but around the the radio, listening to the voice of the Führer. What else came online at the same time? Talking movies. 35-millimeter camera for action shots, for journalism. Vinyl records. The Nazi party, even before 33, packaged vinyl, of course they were brown vinyl records, with Hitler speeches and marches on them. So these were incredible inventions of the time. People had never heard of these things before. The telephone, the uh, colorful graphics, cheap, cheap paper, newspaper. This was a communications revolution, and the Nazis understood how to use it. In the 1920s, only the Nazis understood the advantage of electronic um, uh, voice amplification. That's why Hitler could speak to 10,000 people, because his voice was amplified. And try it. One, you can't speak for more than 15 minutes to an audience of 100 people. Your voice goes. But the Nazis used that too. All right, so let's take a look. The Olympics. And I'm mentioning this because the Olympics of 1933 were technologically dazzling. There was real-time broadcasting throughout the world for the first time ever of any event. People could listen to their radios and hear what was going on in Berlin. 
and it came from Germany. And of course, the, the brilliant filmmaker Leni Riefenstahl shot a classic film. You still see if you take a history of documentary film. This is the, this is the program of the Olympics called the Festival of Beauty. And I'm mentioning it that the International Olympics Committee was under considerable pressure to boycott the Olympics in Nazi Germany, and the boycott failed. Because the boycott failed, Hitler said, see, the world wants the Olympics to be in Germany. And the Germans put on an extraordinary pageant. I guess except the World Cup was maybe similar to that, maybe, but probably not quite. Now, the, the Nazis understood that in a global world, that people in Germany could read the foreign press. They could travel to France. They could read critics. So instead of just plain censoring critics, the journalists at the time and editors at the time showed Germans criticisms from other countries, anti-German propaganda, and explained to them how silly the ridicule was. So they ridiculed the ridiculers which was also a brilliant tactic, instead of just thinking that they could keep the, the press censored. So here are some examples. In the SS magazine, uh, every week they had a special featuring anti-German cartoons. The uh, French car cartoon was uh, reprinted and laughed at in this um, magazine called Neues Volk, which had a kind of format of, the, of Life magazine. It was a little bit smaller. Um, artists who had been starving for years and years, that is, realistic artists, uh, suddenly got commissions. And Hitler himself acquired paintings every year. Realistic, pure art was very popular. This particular one is the one that hung over Hitler's own personal apartment in Munich, uh, notice, incidentally, that Hitler, Hitler liked Renaissance, that is, non-German. Uh, art. That's a, a kind of Renaissance theme. Uh, this is called, I think, the four, the four Seasons, of course, not a very original title. And one way of making German art, pure art, look purer was to juxtapose it with decadent art. And so instead of, again, just censoring decadent art, instead, decadent art was put on view and people were told to look at it. They were given permission to stare so they could see the contrast between uh, uh, Dix, Otto Dix and uh, the pure art. So they could feel once again that the dangerous decadent art was gone. This is the, this is the image of Hitler, the great leader. We all know this. Oh, and I, I'm going to, from now on, I'm going to use the old German script. Uh, it, it, I'll explain why later. Okay, so this is the Hitler that was produced by the artists, the chariz charismatic leader, the father figure, but Hitler also understood, or Hoffmann, his private photographer, understood something that Clark Gable understood in the United States, and we now call that celebrity journalism. What is celebrity journalism? Celebrity journalism... Oh, read People magazine. You know what it is. It's the production of private life for public consumption. So along with the official Hitler here, we have little booklets published for not very much money showing the private Hitler, 
the nice guy, Hitler with his dog, Blondie. And the last page in this little booklet said, oh, evil people poisoned Blondie, and Blondie died. They really knew how to hurt a man. Uh, and then here is a child's prayer, adapted from a Christian child's prayer, and Hitler the father figure. So Hitler also had the man of the people, and that's really important for Star Appeal. Every time kids visited Hitler in the... In, um, in, in Berlin, they went home with a picture like this. Now, I'm going to show you some slides of a Hitler Youth slideshow in three parts. I'll, I'll be merciful. I'll just show a small selection from each one. And you can go against the background of this very savvy regime, mastered the art of marketing, of advertising. Now let's look at education. A slideshow was put together of 76 slides in three different parts. How wonderful the Germans were, racially. How damaged genes, that is, uh, people who were born with defects, so-called, were hurting Germany. And the third part was about the Jews hurting Germany. The title was Healthy Life. The emphasis is entirely on the positive here. Germany for the Germans under German leadership, okay? All of the racial laws each had a slide, and each slide of a racial law was positioned next to a work of art. This particular statue was made to commemorate the law requiring that everybody who got married had to have a genetic health certificate. It's interesting, too. You think about the Nazis as being prudish, but look at the statue. Breaks your stereotype. The law of the Nuremberg Law of 1935 that expelled Jews from citizenship was paired with one of the great medieval statues in uh, a German cathedral. Now, the second part of the slideshow, once again, was saying, look at the unfortunate. Now, I know when I was growing up in Wisconsin, somebody would come along, they broke their leg skiing, and I would, oh, look at that. My mother would, don't stare. They, they don't want to be stared at. So you were told, we were told not to stare at people who were unfortunate in any way. This slideshow says, look, to incite disgust. Instead of feeling Christian so-called charity, instead of feeling empathy for the misbegotten, people were encouraged to stare and to feel repulsion. Here's a, a, the middle center fold of a, of a choice. We don't want people like this on the left. We only want people like this on the right. Think for yourselves. On the left, we don't want them. On the right, we do. So gradually, we're getting the idea that, moral, that physical appearance is moral value. We want left, right, left, right. Then... There's some mathematics, some cost accounting. The danger of higher fertility among the inferior. The wrong kind of people are being born. Kids in classes were told to do, learn ratios, calculating the amount of money that it costs to pay for an inferior person and the amount of money that it costs to pay for a so-called uh, healthy person. Here's another one uh, to do the ratios. Therefore, the moral is, from all of these standpoints, 
Life, for some unfortunate people, life is only a burden. Life without hope. Therefore, the moral of the slideshow was, God cannot want the sick and the inferior infected to reproduce their sickness and infection. And look at this. This group of imbeciles is the product of dysgenic marriages. They each suffer from obvious moral and physical and mental defects, which make them incapable of living happy, productive lives. They are among the better not born, people who would be better off dead. This is from the United States in the 1920s. And if you want to find the history of this movement, Google Fitter Families USA. So that in this respect, we, outside of Germany, are embarrassed to remember it, but the idea of sterilizing against their will people deemed unfortunate was popular in the world. Every one of these stars indicates a country that had eugenic legislation in the 1930s. In the United States, 53,000 people were sterilized against their will from the beginning of the century until the 1960s. I think North Carolina had its last sterilization in the 1960s. Uh, in Sweden, it went on even longer. Uh, in Germany, up to maybe 400,000 people were sterilized against their will in, in, during the Nazi period. Um, actually, this is another Fitter family poster, but you can do Here's an example how even advertising, this is an advertising an advertisement for a chainsaw. Rich harvest comes only from healthy indigenous young plants by this particular chainsaw. Racial thinking was mainstreamed into every aspect of German life so that people who were not in any way Nazis, who were critical of the regime, would listen to what seemed like the voice of experts, telling them that racial thinking was just common sense. Here's a, a poem that kids had to learn. Keep your blood pure. It does not belong to you alone. Like you learn. Isn't virtue being unselfish? Really? Isn't virtue putting your own best interests back and promoting collective interests? That was the moral of the Nazi period. Keep your blood pure. It doesn't belong to you alone. Now here are some discussions about Jews. And you would have encountered, if you were in school, you would have encountered anthropology, physical anthropology. And here we have three females from inferior racial stock, Jews, East Asians, and Africans. That Jews were taken away from the Western mainstream and identified along with people from outside of Europe. And lest you think that this is only uh, a German tendency, look at these. This is Ernest Hutton. Who was Ernest Hutton? Ernest A. Hutton was the chair of the anthropology department at Harvard for 30 years. There's a Prize named after Ernest Houghton, given by the Anthropological Association still today. And this is his discussion, the racial derivation of a Jewish type. Um, I actually found out a little bit about Ernest Houghton because he came from Wisconsin. And he went to study in Oxford. And during this time, he said, oh, he said, in Wisconsin, we never, we never were anti-Semitic. I never knew any kind of anti-Semitism until I got to Harvard. 
And then he said, oh, no, no, he resisted it. And he said, of course, in Wisconsin, there weren't, we weren't anti-Semitic because there were no Jews. Uh, and in England, all the, all the Jews had the same accent, and so Ernest couldn't tell them apart. Anyway, so that, again, the prejudice was not unique to Germany. What was unique to Germany is what happened after the war began. Here are some more pictures. Uh, bracketing Jewish pictures with um, people from non-Western backgrounds. And then the United States itself was used as a great example of, the, uh, of segregation. So this is a map appearing again in this kind of Life magazine format of the United States showing the different kinds of laws. And these laws, it said, were like the Nuremberg laws against the Jews in Germany. And the pictures on the subsequent pages showing slaves in chains said how much more positive the anti-Semitism was in Germany, so much better than racism in the United States. Um, and here some children were born of Jewish... Uh, Jewish Sorry, some, parent, some children were born during a time in the early 20s when French soldiers, some of them from the colonies, occupied the Rhineland, and about six or 700 kids were born to German mothers and occupation soldier fathers, and they were called the Rhineland Bastards. Notice what the photography is doing here. Look how cute the kids are. But again, the pictures were saying, there's something wrong with them cutting off natural empathy or human feeling with them. Here's a, another, an expert writing an article about the Jews as a criminal element of caricature. Can you read this caricature? What's happening here? You recognize this? It's a current theme. It's an anti-abortion caricature without even words. Because the Jewish doctor is guilty of all of these aborted babies. Um, films were very popular. Uh, German, and interestingly enough, until the late 30s, of the hundreds of films licensed, produced in Germany, only two had anything to do with Jews. That Goebbels, the propaganda minister, understood that people needed relaxation, they wanted to export their films everywhere in the world, and so the, until the war began, there were relatively few feature films that talked about Jews. Instead, there were documentary films that you would see after the newsreel, after the coming attractions, then you might see a five-minute clip talking about the latest racial science. And here's a children's book from the late 1930s, uh, once again, trying to get to children, telling them, be careful of the Jew who is going to cheat you. I'm, actually, I want to end on time, so I'm going to go through. Oh, well, all right, let's look at this one anyway. Um, and incidentally, for those of you who are interested, look, uh, there's an incredible website with uh, anti-Nazi and Nazi posters at Calvin College, and this is the URL. They have an incredible collection of propaganda, and it's translated. Uh, okay, the Jewish hawker is a cheat and a seducer. He lies all the time, and you, you pay the price. So many have gone through the mill. Wouldn't, would you be saved from these penalties? Then don't let the Jew come in and buy only from the Jew. Title of this is The Poison Mushroom. The message is, 
poison mushrooms are just as pretty and beautiful as regular mushrooms, and it takes an expert to be able to identify the poison mushroom. You need to listen to the experts. Racial hatred and racial fear is not emotional. It is scientific. It is the latest knowledge. It is not predated. We look at it as ideology. It was taught as truth. Here is a small history excerpt talking about the Jew who founded the British World Empire and, of course, set it up for control by the Jews. This is Prime Minister Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli. And once again, pictures, look documentary, looks like history. Um, a special series was, uh, was appeared in, the again, this Life magazine-type um, publication called The Neues Volk. And if any of you are interested in renting or viewing films, Nazi propaganda, documentary propaganda films, here is the uh, address of the Jewish Film Archive at Brandeis University. Uh, this is um, an announcement for The Eternal Jew, a terrible propaganda film that was shown during the war. Now, on November 9th and 10th, 1938, a, young, a German diplomatic official died in Paris because three days earlier, a young Jewish man shot him. He walked into the German embassy and shot Ernst von Rath, a diplomat, not the, not the ambassador, and two days later, von Rath died. And this time, November 9th and 10th, 1938, was the annual celebration of the failed March of 1923, the Beer Hall Putsch you learn learn about. It failed. So every year, all the big party leaders showed up in Munich, and at this particular time, the minister, sorry, the diplomat in Paris died of his wounds from being shot. The public outcry was terrible. First, let me tell you what happened. I, I always assume everybody knows, but I... Everywhere in Germany, synagogues were burned, they were bombed, stores with Jewish owners were smashed, SA men broke into individual apartments, they slashed the mattresses, they stole the cutlery, they destroyed property, and the public opinion was outraged. Oh, how do we know about public opinion in a, in a dictatorship? You can't write in, you can't write to a letter. They write a letter to the editor. Dictatorships absolutely in the modern age must have good feedback because they must, like good marketers, they must know which of their techniques works and which doesn't. So all over Germany there were V people, the trusty people. Every neighborhood had one. Every week they got a question or every month they got a question saying, how is this law? Is this popular? Is this isn't? Is this not? And the answers came back. They were compiled in Berlin, actually, and now they, they're, they're available in 18 separate paperback uh, books. Uh, and that's not the complete copy. That's, the, that's just an excerpt, excerpts from them. Overwhelmingly, Germans were outraged at the destruction of private property. We're not sure they were outraged at an anti-Jewish action, but it was clear it was not popular. 
Oh, how else did we, do we know what Germans thought? Well, the Socialist Party was underground, and the Socialist Party was planning for a revolution, and they also needed to have information about morale. So the Socialist Party had representatives all over Germany, and they put together their reports, and they sent them to Paris, first to Prague and then to Paris, and then they disappeared altogether. So we, can, we know, we have a very good sense. We know more, I think, about public, appearance, public opinion in Nazi Germany than we do in the United States. Um, so how was this marketed? The SS was not initially part. The SS was the elite black shirt corps, paramilitary, and at first the SS was not in favor of this boycott. So here's how they advertised the I'm sorry, uh, uh, pogrom. I'm sorry, I said boycott. They showed you a random sample of these Jewish men. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to concentration camps in Germany. This is the first time Jews were arrested as Jews. And they were depicted as criminals. Remember the picture of the article about the Jew as criminal? Their heads were shaven, they were put into prison garb, and they were depicted as dangerous people. So once again, destruction of Jews and Jews' property was billed as protection from a dangerous enemy. Um, now, the last, oh, yes, okay, this is the last few minutes. The last phase begins with September 1st, 1939, when the Nazis, sorry, when the German army marched into Poland. And the propaganda continued that every, that the invasion of the East meant the invasion by the superior of the inferior people. And you notice that quotation at the bottom, is everything equal that has a human face? This was a slogan of the Nazis. And it was repeated by, I still think, the greatest political theorist of the 20th century, Carl Schmitt, in 1933, educated jurist Carl Schmitt, said in a small pamphlet he wrote, not everything with a human face is human. And that limits the range of moral obligation. The face on the right is somebody who had no moral claim against the person on the left. On the day of the invasion, September 1st, 1939, Hitler decided to exterminate people who were thought to be unworthy. Actually, he didn't make that decision on September 1st. He made the decision a month later after the invasion was successful, but he backdated the order to September 1st. And then began the so-called the uh, T4 operation, secret. T4 was a shorthand for the address of the office that directed extermination. And this is one of the very few signed orders that anyone has of Hitler. Hitler, among other things, was phobic about writing his name. That's why everybody should have known that he didn't write those fake diaries 20 years ago. Uh, that surfaced 20 years ago, but there's a signature on Hitler's name on his private stationery, 
authorizing physicians to kill people who couldn't earn their keep. They were called useless eaters. And this began in October 1939. And from there, and I'm not going to hear talk about World War, II, World War II. Uh, that's stage three, and I'll cut it very short because that's the better-known story. That's the story of the deportations. That's the story of the Yellow Star. It's the story of the ghettos. It's the history of wartime extermination operations. And what I've wanted to emphasize here is the six so-called normal years. Uh, when I was a kid and I hitchhiked around Germany and, and when I was an exchange student, I noticed that you know, I'd sit and I'd, I'd talk to them, oh, what happened here? And the Germans would tell me what a wonderful time it was during the, before the war. Oh, you can't imagine, they would say to the sweet little naive American, you can't imagine how wonderful it was. And I said, oh, when did the war begin? Oh, they said 1943. In other words, as long as Germany was winning, it wasn't the war. It was only the war when the tide changed at Stalingrad. And so I'll cut this part short, but I do want to quote from a very well-known uh, speech that Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, gave to his elite SS officers in the Polish city of Posen in 1943 in October. Because he was troubled. Himmler felt that the work, the actual disgusting, appalling brutality of mass murder was going to erode the sanity of his finest men. And so he gathered together his elite and he said, our basic principle, this is quoting from Himmler, our basic principle must be the absolute rule for SS men. We must be honest, decent, loyal, and comradely to members of our own blood and to nobody else. What happens to a Russian or a Czech does not interest me in the slightest. Most of you, he continued, must know what it means when 100 corpses are lying side by side, or 500 corpses, or 1,000 corpses, to have stuck it out, and at the same time, apart from a few exceptions caused by human weakness, to, to have stuck it out, to have remained decent fellows, that is what made us hard. This is a page of glory in our history, which has never been written and will never be written. And that is Hitler's morality. That is the extreme case of a morality that's righteous for the us and ruthless for the other. And just look at the example of these finest SS men. Here they are, drilling in parade, goose-stepping in the upper right. And here they are in the ravine of Baba Yar in September 1941, where they slaughtered one-on-one, -on -one, not in gas chambers, but directly murdered 30,000 Jews in 24 hours. And what are they doing there? Hitler's finest, Himmler's finest. You can hardly see them, right? They are picking through the corpses, looking for valuables. 
these are the men who should remain decent no matter what they've been through. And the basis of this ethos was that Germans are morally superior and other people don't count. And so to get back to Dr. Wittenstein's question, how do these decent people, how do they stay sane? How did it happen that decent people committed crimes on this scale? There's a German phrase, Denker und Dichter. How did a people of thinkers and poets descend to this level, to this depth? And I'm going to ask you, maybe what happened is that exactly the high culture of the us insulated perpetrators against the moral crime of killing the others so that feelings of superiority might very well have eased their consciences so that the kind of the people of the, 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 the tradition of Denka und Dichter that we think should protect us against this kind of catastrophic crime perhaps um, facilitated it. Okay, in conclusion, I would like to raise two events that came across my radar screen. Uh, one of them uh, in October. Uh, this speaks to the issue of different kinds of people. Michael Mukasey was facing the Judiciary Committee hearing uh, about whether he was going to take office. On October 8th, 18th, 2007, Mukasey said, and this is for Attorney General, what, experience, what the experience of, is of people, now, people are never that articulate when they're talking out loud, so this isn't real articulate, but anyway, I'm going to quote him exactly. What the experience is of people in the Judge Advocate General's Corps with capital, captured soldiers from enemies we fought, they're different from enemies we fought in the past. The enemies we have fought in the past may have been different from the experience that we're having with unlawful combatants we face now. It's a very different kind of person. It is the unlawful combatant. It's a very different kind of person. That they're off the moral map. And then, because I'm at the University of California, I would like to ask if anybody here has heard of Kevin McDonald. Teaches North, uh, at Northridge, UC Northridge. Anybody ever heard of Kevin McDonald? He is a biologist. And he began his life as a social biologist, psychologist, social psychologist, sorry. And he's a kind of social biologist. And Kevin McDonald, go to his website, used to publish with Prager. And then he went off the deep end. And now he self-publishes and he self-promotes. Kevin McDonald argues that culture determines gene pool and that Jews after many, many, many centuries of excelling at financial transactions, that Jews have their own separate biological identity. And I won't go on. I'll let you uh, look at his website. He cites um, experiments. He cites detail. He has everything except anything empirical. And I think that and his freedom of speech is protected. There's no way that he's going to be deprived of his tenure. He teaches at Northridge. He lectures around the country. He's quite prominent among 
Uh, what can I say? People not like us? No, I don't want to say that. Uh, anyway, so it's just a, a, some flags. So resistance, therefore, is anchored in intellectual moral beliefs that will not bend. And I'd like to conclude by quoting Susan Sontag, who spoke about moral courage, a moral courage that depends on an autonomous, critical thinking, intellectual commitment, as well as ethical commitment. Sontag, shortly before she died, courage has no moral value in itself, for courage is not in itself a moral virtue. Vicious scoundrels, murderers, terrorists may be brave. To describe courage as a virtue, we need an adjective. We need to speak of moral courage. And I think that's the tradition that we're here honoring today. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.